Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we are going to be talking about Genesis 22. Genesis 22, for those not familiar with this text, is the classical test of Abraham. Abraham is one of the most important characters in the Bible. God was using Abraham to build himself his own people group, a loyal people group. He says, I know Abraham, it will serve me, and he'll have his descendants serve me. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give him a people. And this people group is going to be a priest nation to reach the rest of the world. He tells him, your descendants will be as countless as the stars, and through your descendants, I will bless the world. The Bible from here on out kind of treats this as the central promise around which the rest of the books align. So to catch everyone up to the story so far, God has appeared to Abram or Abraham and promised him. And this is a unilateral promise. This is a promise in which Abraham doesn't have to do anything on his part to fulfill this promise. So recalling the promise, Genesis 12 now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Skipping to Genesis 15, And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look towards the heaven and number the stars. If you were able to number them, then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Later in the same chapter, God gives a promise of Israel, the land of Israel, to Abraham. So Abraham has all these promises. He has promises of land. He has promises of descendants. He has promises that his own son would perpetuate his lineage. And so what does Abraham do? He has a son with a bondservant. In Genesis 16, 16, Hagar gives birth to Ishmael. But this wasn't quite God's plan. Nowhere in the promises say that Abraham's lineage is going to be through Sarah. This is a new development in the life of Abraham. And God promises that Sarah, Abraham's first wife, would be the one to perpetuate the lineage. This new promise comes in Genesis 18. So in Genesis 21, we see Isaac born. Now Isaac is the true heir of Abram. What happens to Ishmael and Hagar? They are cast out. Sarah shows a lot of jealousy. Sarah doesn't want uh, Isaac's lineage to be spoiled. So she gets Abraham to cast out Hagar and Ishmael the bondservant, and Abraham's other son, cast him out. So all Abraham is left with is Isaac when we reach Genesis 22. Let's be thinking of this when we're dealing with the mental stress, the mental thoughts of Abraham, of Isaac, of God, within the events of Genesis 22. The context is God's unilateral promise to Abraham, for a great nation through Abraham's own lineage, and then also Abraham only having the one son left. So now let's listen to Yale professor Christine Hayes, and she's got about four minutes of commentary on the events of Genesis 22, and it's worth a listen. 
But really, the greatest threat to the promise comes from God himself, and that is in Genesis 22, when God tests Abraham with the most horrible of demands. The child of the promise, Isaac, who's born miraculously to Sarah when she was no longer of childbearing age, is to be sacrificed to God by Abraham's own hand. And the story of the binding of Isaac is one of the most powerful, most riveting stories, not only in the Bible, but some have claimed in all of world literature. The story is a marvelous exemplar of the biblical narrator's literary skill and artistry. This week's assigned reading includes selections from Robert Alter's book, The Art of Biblical Narrative, which I heartily recommend to read in its entirety. Alter describes the extreme economy of biblical narrative, economy in the description of physical settings and character as well as speech. Rarely does their narrator comment on or explain a character's actions or thoughts or motives. There's only the barest minimum of dialogue. And on the few occasions that the Bible will violate this principle of verbal economy, for example, if two characters converse at length, you can be sure it's significant. You'll want to pay extra attention. The biblical narrator's concealing of details and the motives of the characters, God and Abraham and Isaac, leads to ambiguity and the possibility of very many interpretations. And that is a striking characteristic of biblical prose. Its suppression of detail, its terse, laconic style, that makes the little that is given so powerful, so fraught with background, to use the phrase of Erich Auerbach, uh, whose article you are also to read this week. Auerbach contrasts the literary style of Homer with the biblical writer's style, specifically in connection with the story of Genesis 22. The ambiguities and the indeterminacy of the story make it one of the most interpreted texts of all time. Why is God testing Abraham? Does God really desire such a sacrifice? What is Abraham thinking and feeling as he walks, for three days already walks, with his son, bearing the wood and the fire for the sacrifice? Does he fully intend to obey this command, to annul the covenantal promise with his own hand, Or does he trust in God to intervene? Or is this a paradox of faith? Does Abraham intend faithfully to obey, all the while trusting faithfully that God's promise will nevertheless be fulfilled? What's Isaac thinking? Does he understand what is happening? How old is he? Is this a little boy or a grown man? Is he prepared to obey? He sees the wood and the firestone in his father's hand. Clearly a sacrifice is planned. He's got three days to figure that out. He asks his father, where is the sheep for the burnt offering? Does he know the answer even as he asks? Does he hear the double entendre in his father's very simple and solemn reply, which in the unpunctuated Hebrew might be read, the Lord will provide the sheep for the offering, my son? Does he struggle when he's bound? Does he acquiesce? The beauty of the narrative is its sheer economy. It offers so little that we as readers are forced to imagine the innumerable possibilities. We play out the drama in countless ways, with an Abraham who's reluctant and an Isaac who's ignorant, or an Abraham who's eager to serve his God to the point of sacrificing his own son, and an Isaac who willingly bears his neck to the knife. Read the story one verse, one phrase, one word at a time. There are so few words that you can be sure that they were chosen with care. You'll be looking at Genesis 22 closely in your section discussions. And as you read the story, 
Remember its larger context, God's promise to make Abraham the father of a great people through his son, Isaac. It's in this context, it's this context, this promise, that gives the story its special power and pathos. One of the things I appreciate about Christine Hayes is her attention to detail, her attention to the text, and her attempt to be faithful and to allow various interpretations of that text. So as we approach Genesis 21, we need to keep in mind, what is the story? What is the narrative? What are the possible character motivations? What are the various character thoughts and interactions between each other? And we just shouldn't try to force our own narrative on it. We should just think about how this works, what possibilities, and how these individual verses lend themselves to the overall narrative. Genesis 22.1 After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. A few things to note about this. Number one, this is God testing Abraham. The text says that God is testing Abraham. Abraham doesn't know that this is a test. There's nothing in there to indicate that Abraham is aware of what's going on. And notice also the call and response. You get the call and response a lot when God is dealing with his prophets, his people, people that he interacts with. In Genesis 46, God is speaking to Israel, Jacob, and he says, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, here I am. Same thing happens with Samuel. First Samuel 3, 4, then the Lord called Samuel and he said, here I am. Notice the call and response. It's systematic in the Bible. Verse 2, he said, take your son, your only son, And remember at this time that Abraham does have a son in Ishmael, but he has sent Ishmael away. And all he's left with is Isaac, although he literally has descended through him a second son. But Isaac is considered the only son. He's the son of the promise, and he's the only son in Abraham's possession at this time. So he says, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, notice that, And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I should tell you. So this dialogue is unilateral. It's one way. It's a monologue. And it's very vague. God says, go take your son and go sacrifice him on a mountain. I'll give you further details. There's a lot of what ifs. What if Abraham protested like he did in favor of the inhabitants of Sodom. He said, don't destroy the wicked and the innocent together. You know, the righteous should be saved, and sometimes the wicked for the sake of the righteous. Remember that in Genesis 18. Genesis 22, we do not get any reply from Abraham. Either he doesn't give one, or his objection is not noted in the text. In verse 3, Abraham grabs a couple servants, they load up a donkey, and they travel. Per verse 4, they travel for three days until they get to the place where the sacrifice is going to happen. Verse 5, Abraham tells the young man to stay, and then he takes the boy up into the mountains. In verse 7, we get some dialogue between Isaac and Abraham. So Isaac's old enough to talk, at least, and old enough to understand at least a little bit of what's going on. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father, he said, I am here, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. 
when they came to the place of which God had told them, and this is an unrecorded conversation, God apparently talks to Abraham again and tells him where they're going. Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So a few things are going on here. Let's uh, look at who the actors are first. Abraham's there, Isaac's there, and this angel of Yahweh, angel of the Lord. And often within the Bible, you see Yahweh and angel being used interchangeably. Like when Jacob wrestles an angel later in the Bible, it says it was an angel that he was wrestling. But in the text, it says he's wrestling Yahweh. This is probably another one of those incidences where the angel of the Lord is Yahweh himself. There's Yahweh who can't be seen, and then there's the Yahweh messenger form that we see various places throughout the Bible. And we know this through the phrasing of what he says. He speaks in the first person. He says, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now, I know that you fear God, Elohim. Seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. From me. It's first person. In verse 13, Abraham offers up a ram that they find that's caught in some bushes. They use that as a sacrifice instead of Isaac. And then Abraham is engaged again by Yahweh. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord. This is God swearing on himself because there's no greater thing to swear on. So this is an extra sure promise. God is swearing to fulfill this. By myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Think back to the previous promises saying basically the same stuff. Because you have obeyed my voice. In verse 1, we are introduced to the test. God tested Abraham. We got the test. He passes the test. God says, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So God learns that Abraham is righteous and faithful. And then he says, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. He's reaffirming all his previous promises because because of this new information that he received through this test. And, and this is reiterated. It's in 16, because you have done this and not withheld your son. And then in 18, because you have obeyed my voice. This entire narrative, how this is structured, how it reads, how it turns out, how it's phrased, it's not conducive to classical 
theology. And what we mean by that is that God's immutable and impassable and has omniscience of all future events. That sort of classical theology, which puts God outside of uh, being relational to human beings. Instead, what we find is God performs tests to figure out how people are going to act. And you see this throughout the Bible. You see it throughout the Bible. Just uh, do a word search on tested or test. And God is continually testing people to see what they will do. King David ends his Psalm 139. He says, test me to know my heart. The assumption is not that God knows everything in the future, all possible futures, stuff like that. It's just not native to their thinking. Instead, God learns information through tests. So how does the negative theologian deal with this sort of text? When I was 17, I went to Summit Ministries in Colorado. It's like a two-week camp where you study the Bible and you meet a bunch of Christians and you bring in a bunch of speakers. And one of the speakers was Ronald Nash. And I was able to have lunch with him one day. And I brought up this stuff because he seems like a very rational guy. He's dead now. But at the time, he seemed very rational, very logical. And so I talked to him about this chapter, Genesis 22. And what does he do? He redirects me and he says, well, you know, open theists will say that this is evidence that God doesn't know the future. So then he switched back to Genesis and said, okay, so here in the garden, God is asking questions to Adam. He's saying, where are you? Did God know where Adam was? So what this is, is it's a feigned non-knowledge. It's, it's just, just a figure of speech or an idiom. So the argument is that because we assume in Genesis 3 that God was asking a question for knowledge that he already had, then we should be treating Genesis 22 in the same fashion. And you hear this argument from all sorts of people, not just Ronald Nash, Ph.D., but from normal Calvinists as well. Weirdly, it's a standard talking point. And what's the difference? In Genesis 3, a question is being asked. And now it could be a known answer question to get someone to confess something. But the purpose of known answer questions is to acquire knowledge. That's the purpose of known answer questions. And the assumption underwriting all of that is that Genesis 3 is a known answer question, which could be or it doesn't have to be. The text doesn't tell us either way. But in Genesis 22, there is no question. There is a statement. It's a statement of fact. Now I know because I have seen. You know, God ties his knowledge to the seen. And that's tied to the test. And the test is given some sort of a reward. Because you did this, I will do that. All those elements fit together to make the test a test. And if you're taking out that middle element... What's the point of the test? What is it doing? And why on earth would it be written with the assumptions that God now has learned knowledge? Why would an author who thinks that God knows the future omnisciently, why would he include phrases that very clearly describe God gaining information? You know, the biblical writers, they just did not have in their repertoire of theology this idea of total omniscience of the future. And they don't write like it. It doesn't read like that. And those ideas have to be imported onto the text. And in such a clumsy fashion, 
that it just negates how the text was written. It's, it's just supplanting the Bible with theology not found in the Bible. A really good book on this subject, which spends a good deal dealing with Genesis 22, is John Sanders' The God Who Risks. And I'm going to read a paragraph from that. God intends to test Abraham's faith, not to have Isaac killed, Genesis 22.1. This test is genuine, not fake. Walter Bergman says that this test is not a game with God. God generally does not know. The flow of the narrative accomplishes something in the awareness of God. He did not know. Now he knows. God's statement, now I know, raises serious theological problems regarding divine immutability and foreknowledge. Many commentators either pass over this verse in silence or dismiss it as a mere anthropomorphism. It is often suggested that this test was for Abraham's benefit, not God's. It should be noted, however, that the only one in the text said to learn anything from this test is God. Abraham probably learned something in his relationship with God, but that is not the point of the text. If one presupposes that God already knew the result of the test beforehand, then there was, in fact, no test, and God put Abraham through unnecessary suffering. So John Sanders is right. He brings it back to the text. What does the text say the point of the test was? What does the text say happened in the test? What does the text say was the result of the test? We can't just put our own interpretation on that. This test is for Abraham's sake. Where does the text say that? It doesn't. The text says it's for God's sake, for God to learn. Why are we taking what's said and just replacing it with our own theology? Does that sound like intellectually honest biblical theology to you? Not me. Now let's turn to what a Calvinist says about this text. Let's turn to Bruce Ware, God's Lesser Glory, and see how he deals with this text. And this first quote that I'm going to read is going to be very telling. This is Bruce Ware. Without any question, the most straightforward and literal meaning of these words, now I know, is just as openness advocates say it is. God now learned what previously he had not known. When Abraham actually raised the knife, then and only then was God able to say, Now I know that you fear me. God learned something he had not known before, and this demonstrates that he does not have exhaustive knowledge of the future. So argues the open theist. But notice that first phrase, and the first thing he says, the most straightforward and literal meaning of these words is just as openness advocates say it is. So he's acknowledging that the openness, open theists, have the most straightforward reading. We should also add in another category there. Not only open theists read it like that, but secular scholarship. Now let's read the three points that Bruce Ware tries to use against the open theist reading of this text, the, the secular scholar reading of this text. He says, first, if God must test Abraham to find out what is in his heart, recall that the text says, for now I know that you fear God, then it calls into questions God's present knowledge of Abraham's inner spiritual, psychological, mental, and emotional state. Really? Really, Bruce Ware? That's, that's your argument? What's this whole free will thing that we're familiar with? People often don't know what they're going to do in a situation until they're actually presented that situation. Bruce Ware is just assuming that humans are robots. And if you understood their entire makeup, if you had a blueprint of 
what a human being was, you could predict their actions in any circumstance. That's not true. The way to test to see what people will do if it's consistent with their character is to put them in that situation and find out. And that will give you evidence, that will give you experience to help determine what they would do in future circumstances. But also notice that his first point relies on a theological proof, one that's not present in the text. He's saying, oh, of course we know that God has all present knowledge. Oh, that that should be a given when we come to this text. Really? That should be a given? You should be importing that theology onto the text? Maybe not. Maybe not. Competent readers just don't bring in their assumptions to the text in which, which they're given. You know, you need to look at context. You need to look at what's been said before. And where in Genesis argues for a current present omniscience? Where is that? Where is that? Does, does the writer, is the writer familiar with these concepts? If we just assume all of our theology onto the text, and that's what guides whatever we want to think about the text, we are in danger of creating our own Bible, one that's not representative of the Bible that we actually have in front of us. And then these secular scholars, they come in and they rip us to shreds because we're not treating the Bible with genuinity. It is funny, though, how Norman Geisler takes his own presumptions, his own assumptions of what present knowledge has to entail and the state of the future and the state of people's hearts and then use that as a proof against a particular straightforward reading of the text rather than trying to figure out how God could have all present knowledge and still not know what Abraham would do. Let's listen to some of his proof texts on this. He says, Consider that 1 Chronicles 28.9 says, For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. And 1 Samuel 16.7, God sees not as the man is, for a man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So how does the Lord look at the heart? Doesn't he do it through testing and searching as the text says? That's what the text says. David says, test my heart and know me. The mechanism for God knowing the heart is through the testing. Wake up, Bruce Ware. You don't know what you're talking about. Bruce Ware writes, second, the even more interesting and important question is this. Does God need this test to know specifically whether Abraham fears God? That is, while it's significant that the openness interpretation implicitly denies God's present knowledge, the first point, even more telling here is the implicit denial of the specific content of this present knowledge. That is, knowledge that Abraham fears God. Look at the context. Look at the context, Bruce, where? Abraham is promised a lineage through his only son, a son that was given to him through his legitimate wife. He cast out his other son, and so All his hopes, all his fears are contingent on the life of this one son, Isaac. This is a legitimate test. It's a new situation that puts into question all of God's promises. If Isaac were to die, what hope is there for Abraham? And that's what's being tested. If Abraham truly fears God enough to give up his own son, whom he loves, and the text says that throughout, whom he loves. I would challenge Calvinists to come up with a more tenseful situation to prove Abraham's loyalty. They can't do it. Here's Bruce Ware's third point. And this is why this guy's just a silly man. Let's listen to this. Third, 
Given the openness commitment to the nature of libertarian freedom, God's test of Abraham simply cannot have accomplished what open theists claim it has. He goes on to write, According to these openness advocates, Abraham's testing proved to God now that Abraham was a faithful covenant partner who therefore could be trusted to be faithful in working with God in fulfillment of God's covenant purposes. But since Abraham possesses libertarian freedom, and since even God can be taken aback by improbable and plausible human actions, what assurances could God have that Abraham would remain faithful in the future? Really? That's your argument? If I'm a wife and I have a husband who I want to test, I might send like a friend over to him to like hit, hit on him and see if he will remain faithful. And guess what? That gives a wife a lot of assurances when the husband rejects those advances because past behavior predicts future behavior. That's how you predict the future through past trends. That's how you know the future. That's how every one of us, when we wake up to go to work and we know we're going to go to work today, we know it through our past experience. That's how, that's how reality works. That's just how normal living works. And Calvinists, to argue against our day-to-day experience, our day-to-day understanding of the way the world works, these people are off their rockers. I, I, do we take them seriously? Can we take them seriously? And sometimes throughout the Bible, God says, I expected you to do this, and that didn't happen. So sometimes God's expectations are subverted in the Bible. But not often, not often, a lot of times you can predict what people do by their past behavior. And guess what? That's the best evidence you have to predict future behavior. So real quick in conclusion, Genesis 22, it's written as a straightforward test. It is a straightforward test. There's no special hidden meaning behind what is written there. God truly did test Abraham to know what he was going to do. And based on the results of that test, based on Abraham's performance, re-upped on his promises to Abraham. If you have any questions or comments on this podcast, feel free to throw that on the God is Open webpage or start a thread on our companion Facebook page, God is Open. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 